Hello everyone and welcome to the December 17th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. In a landmark Court of Appeal decision, the WCAB was reversed and apportionment of permanent disability on pathology was affirmed. Here's what happened in the published opinion of the City of Petaluma versus the WCAB and Aaron Lind. Aaron Lind was a law enforcement officer when he sustained injury to his left eye when he took three to six blows to the left side of his head while engaged in a canine training course. At first, he suffered severe headaches lasting between several hours to one or two days. Then over a month later, while off-duty, Lind suddenly lost most of the vision in his left eye. The QME and other physicians concluded that Lind's blood circulation to his left eye was defective, which played a role in the loss of his sight. The QME said Lind did not have any disability prior to receiving the blows to his head. And absent the injury, Lind most likely would have retained a lot of his vision in that eye although he could not guess how much. And it was possible that Lynn could have gone his entire life without losing vision. The QME also agreed that even had Lynn not suffered the blows to his head, he still could have lost his vision due to this underlying vascular condition. As to apportionment, it was the QME's opinion that Lynn's underlying vasculature placed him at high risk for damage to different parts of his body. Thus, 85% of the disability was due to the underlying condition. The parties stipulated that the case rated 40% permanent disability and only 6% after the QME's apportionment. The workers' compensation judge rejected the apportionment analysis and found Lynn had 40% permanent disability without apportionment and the WCAB affirmed on reconsideration. But the Court of Appeal reversed and ordered 85% apportionment in the published case of City of Petaluma versus the WCAB and Aaron Lind. The Court of Appeal rejected the arguments presented by the Board and the California Applicants' Attorneys Association acting as amicus, that there must be medical evidence that an asymptomatic pre-existing condition will, in and of itself, naturally progress to disable the claimant. It pointed out that the argument reflected the law before 2004. The 2004 enactment of SB 899 overhauled the statutes governing apportionment. The legislature intended to reverse a number of features of the workers' compensation law, including eliminating the bar against apportionment based on pathology and asymptomatic causes. Under the current law, the salient question is whether the disability resulted from both non-industrial and industrial causes, and if so, apportionment is required. Whether or not an asymptomatic pre-existing condition that contributed to the disability would alone have inevitably become manifest and resulted in disability is immaterial. The post-amendment cases uniformly focus on whether there is substantial medical evidence the disability was caused in part 
by non-industrial factors, which can include pathology and asymptomatic prior conditions, for which the worker has an inherited predisposition. And in another case, the Court of Appeal ruled that a background check disclosing prior workers' compensation claims was insufficient evidence to support a FIHA claim. The employer in the case, Peerless Building Maintenance Incorporated, operates a janitorial services company with over 500 employees. A neighbor told Miguel Alvarez that Peerless might be hiring people to clean offices and he might consider applying for a job. So Alvarez went to the Peerless office in Chatsworth and submitted a job application. At the time, Alvarez could perform the duties of a janitor and he had no work restrictions and did not request and did not require any accommodation from Peerless. Peerless had a practice of running background checks on applicants for janitorial positions, which included workers' compensation claim histories. Peerless did not call Alvarez back and did not hire him. According to Peerless, this was because it had lost his job application and could not contact him. And Alvarez did not contact Peerless to ask about the status of his job application. Ultimately, Mr. Alvarez took a position painting houses and doing construction work for another company. Alvarez then filed a civil suit against Peerless, claiming that he was perceived as having had a history of FIHA disabilities and that Peerless discriminated against him for its perception. Peerless moved for summary judgment, which the court granted, and the Court of Appeal sustained the dismissal in the unpublished case of Miguel Alvarez v. Peerless Building Maintenance Incorporated. The plaintiff has the initial burden of producing evidence that establishes a prima facie case of discrimination, which creates a presumption of discrimination. The burden then shifts to the employer to provide a legitimate, non-discriminatory reason for the challenged action. While the employer's knowledge of the employee's disability can be inferred from the circumstances, Knowledge will only be imputed to the employer when the fact of the disability is the only reasonable interpretation of the known facts. Vague or conclusory statements revealing an unspecified incapacity are not sufficient to put an employer on notice of its obligations under FIA. Alvarez's background check listed one employer's one workers' compensation matter. It did not contain any further information or details about the accident, Alvarez's injury, or the workers' compensation case. There was no evidence to suggest the company knew or should have known or perceived that Alvarez had a disability or a history of disabilities. Alvarez asserted that Peerless learned that he had two injured discs in his lower back as a result of his prior work, which prevents him from performing some major life activities, but would not have prevented him from working as a janitor. However, the record contains no evidence that Peerless had information about Alvarez's injured discs at any time before Alvarez filed his lawsuit. And now our crime report. 
an Orange County doctor and his patient were charged with insurance fraud for billing over $850,000 to insurance provider for medically unnecessary compound prescriptions. Sabina Maciel Acevedo, who lives in Anaheim, is accused of completing four compound cream prescription forms for herself and three immediate family members without having had a medical examinations. And Dr. David Todd Asher, who lives in Fullerton, is accused of signing all of the forms without examining any of her family members. The completed prescription forms were sent to San Dimas Pharmacy in Bakersfield to be fulfilled, and the pharmacy billed more than $855,000 to Acevedo's prescription insurance, Express Scripts, which is provided through the Santa Ana Unified School District. Acevedo is accused of receiving nearly $20,000 in kickbacks for fulfilling these prescriptions through San Dimas Pharmacy. Express Scripts and the Santa Ana Unified School District noticed the unusual charges and contacted the Orange County District Attorney's Office, Bureau of Investigation, who commenced an investigation of this case. Dr. Asher has been charged with insurance fraud with sentencing enhancement allegations for over a $100,000 loss and an aggravated white-collar crime over $500,000 and faces 13 years and 8 months in state prison. His patient, Sabina Acido, has been charged with insurance fraud and grand theft with a sentencing enhancement allegation of a crime resulting in over a $100,000 loss. And this is Dr. Asher's second prosecution for medical crimes. Asher was previously prosecuted in the United States District Court, Central District of California, in February 2007. At that time, he was charged with conspiracy and illegal kickbacks for patient referrals and pled guilty to the conspiracy charge in October 2007, and he was placed on probation. At that time, he stipulated to discipline with the medical board for that offense. Dr. Asher now faces new disciplinary charges by the California Medical Board for his conduct while a medical director of Reflections Recovery Center in Costa Mesa. The second charge appears to be related to his signing prescriptions for compounded medications for several patients who had filled out the prescriptions themselves. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB has released its quarterly update on California's statewide insurer experience as of September 2018, and it's mostly good news for California employers and industrial insurance carriers. California written premium for the first nine months of 2018 was 3% below the written premium reported for the first nine months of 2017. And written premium for 2017 was 2% below that for 2016. The decrease in 2017 followed seven consecutive years of increases and was primarily driven by decreases in insurer-charged rates more than offsetting increases in employer payroll. The projected industry average charged rate per $100 of payroll was 10% below the average rate charged in 2017. 
The January 1, 2019 approved advisory pure premium rates are on average 42% below those for January 1, 2015. The WCIRB projects an ultimate accident year combined loss and expense ratio of only 87% for 2017. And indemnity claims continue to settle quicker, improving significantly over the last six years. Claim frequency increased by 11% from 2009 to 2014, but has decreased by 4% from 2014 through the first nine months of 2018. Frequency increases since 2011 have largely been attributed to increases in cumulative injury claims and claims from the Los Angeles Basin area. Decreases in medical severities from 2011 to 2015 were driven by the medical cost savings arising from SB 863. The WCIRB projects the average cost of a 2017 indemnity claim to be about $69,500, which is 2% higher than the projected severity for 2016. The full report is available in the research section of the WCIRB website. The Office of Self-Insurance Plans is a program within the Director's Office of the DIR. It is responsible for the oversight and regulation of workers' compensation self-insurance in California. OSIP is also responsible for ensuring that required security deposits are posted by self-insurers in amounts sufficient to collateralize against potential defaults. OSIP has posted proposed new regulations that will require self-insured public entities to file new annual reports providing demographic, claim, and financial data regarding their workers' compensation programs. These new reports will be due by October 1 of each year and shall cover liabilities for the preceding fiscal year. The proposed regulations were mandated by the 2012 workers' compensation reforms, and they will allow for greater transparency of the solvency and viability of self-insured workers' compensation programs and the true liability of public entities. The 2012 legislative changes require public entities to report portions of their financial statements pertaining to workers' compensation liabilities and to provide aggregate information as a point of reference for other public entities. The proposed new regulations were developed in accordance with the recommendations of a 2014 report conducted by Cheswick, the examination of California Public Shelter public sector self-insurance workers' compensation program. The notice and text of the new regulations can be found on the proposed regulations webpage. A public hearing has been scheduled for 10 o'clock a.m. on January 23, 2019, in room 11 of the Elihu M. Harris State Building in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the regulations until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. Forty years ago, virtually all surgery was performed in hospitals. Now, ambulatory surgery centers offer patients the convenience of having surgeries and procedures performed safely outside the hospital setting. 
The Workers' Compensation Research Institute found an overall shift away from hospital care in workers' comp systems across 18 states, including California, with the trend toward receiving care at less expensive ambulatory surgical centers and non-hospital settings. Virtually all study states saw a downturn in the percentage of claims with both hospital inpatient and outpatient services. Part of the shift follows the trend in general health care, and part of it might be influenced by states where reforms caused payers to rethink more expensive hospital care as a first resort. And technological advances now placed now in place at surgical centers and other non-hospital locations are helping to fuel the trend away from hospital care for injured workers. Lower prices at surgical centers are also spurring the switch since the WCIR data found that care in these non-hospital settings is typically 40% less expensive than at hospitals. Knee surgeries performed at ambulatory surgical centers cost 21 to 76% less than at hospitals at the 14 states included in the study. Section 111 of the Medicare-Medicaid-SCHIP Extension Act of 2007 requires insurers and self-insureds to both identify Medicare beneficiaries with whom they pay benefits associated with work comp, no fault or liability claims, and, once identified, report data to Medicare as directed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. The Reporting Act originally mandated that failure to comply with the reporting requirements shall be subject to a civil penalty of $1,000 for each day of noncompliance for each individual. With the threat of severe penalties, the insurance industry quickly responded, obtaining responsible reporting entity IDs and implementing claim system Section 111 compliance programs as quickly as possible. The Medicare Access and Strengthening Medicare and Repaying Taxpayers Act of 2012, this is known as the SMART Act, softened the penalty language by providing CMS with discretion on the imposition and amount of the penalty. Now, civil money penalties may be subject to a penalty of up to $1,000 for each day of noncompliance with respect to each claimant. The SMART Act also required a regulatory process to quickly solicit proposals determining practices for which such sanctions will and will not be imposed. CMS kicked off the rulemaking process with an advance notice of proposed rulemaking seeking public comment and received 34 written comments, but has done very little about it since then. Now, in the 10 years following the introduction of mandatory insurer reporting, the industry is yet to see any evidence of enforcement in the form of the imposition of dreaded civil money penalties. However, CMS has now issued a clear signal that Medicare secondary payer enforcement will be a priority in 2019. A new notice has been posted which indicates that CMS will move forward with a notice of proposed rulemaking on civil monetary penalties and Medicare secondary payer requirements.
The FDA continues its tough stance against new opioids. It has declined to approve an abuse deterrent version of Mallinckrodt's opioid painkiller, Roxycodone. Mallinckrodt is one of the nation's largest manufacturers of oxycodone, the most commonly abused prescription painkiller after hydrocodone. The treatment is a reformulated version of the company's commonly abused painkiller intended to make the drug less desirable and more difficult to be abused by snorting or injecting. The FDA decision comes after an advisory panel to the FDA voted 10 to 7 in favor of the drug for intranasal use only. But the panel members raised concerns of Mallinckrodt's treatment creating the same problem as Endo International PLC's reformulated Opana ER did. Endo withdrew their drug from the market last year after data showed that while the rates of nasal abuse associated with Opana fell, rates of intravenous abuse rose. The company is evaluating the FDA's letter and will request a meeting in the coming weeks to discuss it further. The California DIR and DWC requested that RAND Institute review the workers' compensation medical legal fee schedule, which has not been revised since 2007, and RAND published its findings in a new 30-page report. Remarkably, RAND points out that the business model for QME reporting has evolved to a system engineered by management organizations that pay the physician performing the evaluation. Typically, these organizations provide office space, scheduling, and transcription services, obtain the medical records pertinent to the examination, submit the required med legal reports, bill for the services, and pay the physician performing the evaluation. The physicians under contract to these organizations are listed as individuals on the DWC's listing of qualified QMEs, but the practice locations and phone numbers are those supported by the management company. Some management organizations do not require an exclusive contract so that the listings for an individual may be associated with more than one management organization. 10 to 20% of initial valuations involve supplemental reports that result from the lack of coordination between the med legal examiners and the primary treating physicians over diagnostic tests needed for an evaluation, and delays in obtaining the medical records in sufficient time for review before the scheduled examination. Several claims administrators noted the tendency of some examiners to file initial evaluation reports that are incomplete with regard to one or more findings. This forces the claims administrator to either ask for a supplemental report or withhold payment until a complete report is filed. The latter action does not happen often because it could harm the claims administrator's relationship with the examiner at potentially risk less favorable permanent disability ratings. The RAND Institute found that the $250 per hour rate used to determine the med legal allowance is significantly higher than the 2017 allowances for evaluation and management services that consist of similar activities. 
It suggests converting the allowance for an extraordinarily complex evaluation into a flat rate based on the complexity of the issues that need to be addressed by the evaluator. Nine states have flat rate payments, most of which vary by the type or number of body parts. Consideration should be given to establishing policies that provide incentives for completing high-quality reports that address the issues outlined in the cover letters from the parties requesting the evaluation. Timely completion of reports could be incentivized by establishing a higher payment for timely submissions. And in medical news, a multidisciplinary research team from the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine, School of Engineering and Applied Science, and School of Veterinary Medicine is aiming to solve back pain. They have been working for the past 15 years on bioengineered disc models, first in laboratory studies, then in small animal studies, and most recently in large animal studies. The current standard of care does not actually restore the disc, so the hope with this engineered device is to replace it in a biological functional way and regain full range of motion. Previously, the researchers tested the new discs called disc-like angle ply structures in rat tails for five weeks. In the new study, the team developed the engineered discs even further then tested the new model called N-plate modified DAPS or EDAPS in rats again, but this time for up to 20 weeks. Following several tests, MRI scans, and several in-depth tissue and mechanical analyses, the researchers found that in the rat model, EDAPS effectively restored original disc structure and function. This initial success motivated the research team to study EDAPS in goats, and they implanted the device into the cervical spines of some of the animals. The cervical spinal discs of goats have similar dimensions to those of humans. Moreover, goats have semi-upright stature, allowing the researchers to bring their study one step closer to human trials. The researchers' tests on goats were also successful. They noticed that the EDAPs integrated well with the surrounding tissue, and the mechanic function of the discs at least matched, if not surpassed, that of the original cervical discs of the goats. The researchers say that the next step will include conducting further, more extensive trials in goats, which will allow the scientists to understand better how well EDAPs work. Moreover, the research team plans to test out EDAPs in models of human intervertebral disc degeneration, thus hopefully getting one step closer to clinical trials. The researchers say it would be a paradigm shift for how we really treat these spinal diseases and how to approach motion-sparing reconstruction of joints. So with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, and Langevin. 
Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.